May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. In this, our second week of the of our Advent walk, today we encounter John the Baptist, traditionally described as the forerunner, the forerunner to Jesus. The relationship between Jesus and John is clearly important. It's one of the few topics which is talked about in all four Gospels. Jesus' birth only appears in two of them. And it's one of, the, one of the things they actually pretty much agree on. Like there are differences between the four versions, but overall, it kind of flows the same in each of the four Gospels. Which, given they don't even agree on where the resurrection appearances happen, some of the Gospel writers, well, Mark hardly mentions it, and some placing the resurrection appearances in Jerusalem, and some of them in Galilee... It's a pretty significant thing that around John and Jesus, they pretty much agree with each other. So clearly, the relationship between Jesus and John is important, more important than we realise. So why would it be important? Well, in Jesus' world, the person who came first is the most important. That means... John is the most important because he is the oldest and he comes first. Actually, you can go back. We'll have the slide a bit later. Yep, just stick on that one for a while. And as well as that, there's increasing speculation that Jesus may well have been one of John's disciples. That he spent time with John, learning from John. And if that's true... Again, John is the more important. He is the rabbi, the teacher. Jesus is the disciple who simply carries on John's work. Jesus, John would be the one who takes priority. Now we have to remember that when the Gospels are being written, there are still communities of John's disciples around. Certainly a lot less than before the fall of Jerusalem. But there are still groups who adhere to John's teachings. And they wouldn't have been at all happy that this upstart disciple is now being described as the one people should follow instead of John. More so because Jesus adds to John's teaching. He changes it slightly. And so all four Gospels are at pains to show how John understood himself as preparing the way. Yes, John comes first. Yes, John is older. Some people even suggest that's why the Gospel writers don't even talk about Jesus being a disciple of John, because it's best just to ignore that. Really, it complicates things. And that's why all four Gospels make it really clear that even he, John, understood that Jesus would supplant him. 
And so we have these carefully crafted stories in each of the Gospels that counter the claim that John is superior, that his message was superior. They are crafted to meet the opposition both from John's disciples and from others who knew the story. They are carefully crafted to show how Jesus stood in the tradition of John's message of repentance, but that he was the true teacher. So what is this message of repentance? How about you turn to your neighbour for a second and talk about what repentance means for you. You've got about 30 seconds to work it out. What is repentance? What is repentance? hear what you think repentance is. Who would like to offer a thought? To turn around? Modify your ways? So that kind of fits with the Greek metanoia, to turn around, to modify your ways? To forgive. We are forgiven, but that's not out of the, out of the, oh, yep, that's part of turning around, yes, definitely, that's what it involves. Any other thoughts? To acknowledge to God that you're wrong. To acknowledge to God that you're wrong, yep. There are a couple of problems with our understanding of repentance and how repentance would have been understood in the Bible. And the first of those problems is that we understand repentance in terms of an individual. Because for us, an individual is very important. But actually, in Jesus' world, they didn't understand individuals as we understand individuals. The smallest unit really was the family. Probably the closest we can get to that in our world is to our Māori. So if I was to ask Graham who he was... He would give me a little pipiha about his mountain and his river and his ocean and who his ancestors were, what his waka is, who his iwi is, his marae, his whare tūpuna, his hapu. And that's who he is, tied up in all of that. And that's the same for Jesus. There was no such person as an individual. Everyone existed within a family unit. And their identity was bound up in that. So as an individual, you could never turn on your own. Because you were never on your own. You are always part of something bigger. And so the first thing we need to know about repentance is it's not just about us as individuals. It always had a social aspect. It was about families, it was about communities, it was about society. So repentance wasn't just about individuals. 
And the second thing is, and some of you kind of picked up on this, when Jesus and John talk about repentance, they are going back not just to the Greek, but to the Hebrew, to a word pronounced, well, the word is shuv, which kind of should ring some bells, because it was a word I used a lot when I was talking about the 23rd Psalm, and the beginnings of the Good Shepherd tradition, which Jesus placed himself within. And it's a tradition that starts with the 23rd Psalm and can be traced right through into the Gospels and beyond. And shuv means to turn, literally to turn. And so the Good Shepherd turned, turned to find the lost sheep. So it literally means turn. But it's also a metaphor for a radical change in, of intention connected with behaviour. It's how we live our lives. And the website that I went to talked about how it was the constant refrain of the prophets. That Israel should repent, turn from their idolatry and turn, shuv, Return to God. That God should be once again at the centre of their lives. That other things had got in the way. And what we heard this morning from Isaiah was a picture of Isaiah describing what the world would look like when people put God back in the centre. And it's an amazing picture even the lions were eating straw. I'm sure we should have Paula out there cheering loudly. <laughs> no more carnivores. So repentance is communal. And repentance was part, a significant part of the prophetic tradition. And John stood in that tradition, as did Jesus. Both stood in that tradition. A tradition which called for a turning from how one or how people see the world to a a place where God is placed at the centre of that. Which calls for a living out of Torah, of law. Now, we have a very ambivalent feeling about Torah. We don't like law. We feel quite anxious about Sharia law. And we're not sure what to do with Mosaic law. But actually, those laws are not things that you do to earn the right to be with God. Those laws are there to describe what living in the presence of God looks like. So if you want to adhere to what the prophets say, which is God should be at the centre of your life, as communities... You then ask, well, what does that look like? How do I do that? And that's where law comes in. It describes what it looks like when we place God at the centre of our lives, when God is the most important thing. And so people were to live Torah. And so the prophets talked about the kind of community that would exist if people had God at the centre. A community where all had a place, even the aliens, the widows, the orphans, where all were cared for. 
society built on God's compassion and justice and mercy. Well, today's story starts with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it's interesting that these two groups place together. And because they're placed together, we often think that they are very similar and kind of the same. But in fact, they were radically different. The Sadducees were there, the Judean elite. They are the ruling class. And they have particular untheological understandings. They don't believe in resurrection uh, and law. The understanding of the law was around what happened in the temple. They are the ones that run the temple. They are the ones that are in charge of the army. They are the ones that collect the temple tax. They are the ones who are profiting out of colluding with the Romans. They're in charge. They're in power. They're doing okay. They don't want their world disturbed. The Pharisees are the intellectual reformers. They have much more in common with John and Jesus than they do with the Sadducees. They are the ones who think that how society is operating is wrong and they want to change it. Now, there's more behind the story than we can ever get into. There's clearly some some fighting, some kind of grappling between the burgeoning Christian community and the Pharisees who are the ones that kind of inherit Judaism after the fall of the temple. So there's a power struggle going on. And it's very important for the Christians that they can differentiate themselves from the Pharisaic Judaism. They're different. So they have to paint the Pharisees in the worst possible light possible. And man, do those gospel writers paint those Pharisees in the worst possible light. But even accepting that, it's clear that for John and for Jesus, the Pharisaic calls for reform did not go far enough. That the Pharisees' understanding of what it would look like to live in the presence of God was still too watered down. And so when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to see him, John gives them both a bollocking, doesn't he? I mean, can you imagine me saying those kinds of things if people turned up to church? Some of you would just tell me that I've gone too far and that I should leave immediately, I'm sure. Some of you might applaud, but who knows? Depends on who it is. He is accusing them of being too lax because they believed that because they were the descendants of Abraham, God was on their side and all would be good. To which he responds, God can make descendants of Abraham out of these stones. Don't count on it, boys and girls. It's not worth the paper that you've written that on. John is reminding them that none of that is true. That the most... that. The social aspect of the law was as true, if not more important, than the ceremonial and ritual aspects of the law that they took so seriously. And then he has that great line about axes to roots. It's a dramatic line. No, not yet. Back. <laughs> you can start that one for now. That'll do. We're nearly there. Yeah, yeah. I can talk more about axes later. <laughs> it was the best picture I could find. 
I mean, not only does the tree get chopped down, but there's a whole lot of... And not only does the stump get ground, but the roots get removed as well. The axe is on the roots. I mean, this is radical chopping down, isn't it? When I chop a tree down, there's a little bit of stump and the roots are left there. John is saying even the roots are gone. The axe is lying at the roots. The roots are ripped out. It's a dramatic image that invites people to think about where are their roots? Where are our roots? It calls into question where their roots lie and where our roots lie. What are the images of God that shape their lives? What shapes their priorities and values? Where is their source of sense of self-worth? And then we come to the crunch of the story. We might think all that other stuff was a crunch, but the real crunch is this. The relationship between John and Jesus. This whole story is really told to show how Jesus is the most important. Jesus is the priority. That's why the story is told. Jesus is the true teacher. Jesus carries on the teaching and work of John But he fulfills it. It's not enough to just stay with John's message. The message paraphrases the last part of the reading we heard this morning like this. The real action comes next. The main character in this drama, compared to him, I'm a mere stagehand. He will ignite the kingdom of life within you. A fire within you. The Holy Spirit within you. Changing you from the inside out. He's going to clean house. Make a clean sweep of your lives. He'll place everything true in its proper place before God. Everything false he'll put out with the trash to be burned. I suspect that most of us this morning felt pretty uncomfortable with the last line of the reading we heard this morning. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It feels really judgmental. And in fact, on Tuesday, it was described as judgmental. Jesus seems to be judging between us, condemning some to the eternal fire, the asbestos fire, and others to life. And that's not an image that many of us know what to do with. Well, again, there are problems with that understanding. And the first is... It's not about individuals, because individuals, as we know it, doesn't exist as a concept in Jesus' world. It just doesn't exist. If you tried to talk to somebody of Jesus' world about individuals, their eyes would glaze over and they wouldn't have a clue what you were talking about. It's not a concept that they can comprehend. Well, that's true of his world, but we do live in a world about individuals. Individuals have become the most important thing. And so we can read it as being about individuals, but we have to always remember the social aspect, that it's not just about individuals. When John was speaking, when Jesus was speaking, there was always this communal social aspect to everything they said, because you couldn't speak in any other way. The second thing is to think that it's about 
whole communities or whole individuals being sent to the fire. But I think, and several of the commentators I read, well, they didn't say that the message had it right, but they agreed with how the message has put it. He'll place everything true in its proper place before God. Everything false he'll put out with the trash to be burned. It's about the aspects of community that lead us astray, the aspects of our lives that need to be rooted out. And so here we are back with the axe, or in our case, the secateurs and the roots. So what are we to do with all of this? Well, we are in the story in two ways today. The first way we are there as, well, we're there amongst the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It's us he's talking to. It's us he's giving a bollocking to. But we're also standing with John. We are the ones who prepare the way. We are the ones whose voice calls out in the wilderness, preparing the way. A long time ago, for my 21st birthday, I was given a fruit salad plant, and I still have this fruit salad plant in a pot outside. And a few years ago, two two or three years ago, it started just blooming. It was so healthy and magnificent, and Bonnie and I really couldn't work out what was going on. Why was this fruit salad plant suddenly so healthy? Maybe we'd put our, one of our dog's ashes right down the bottom of this pot. Maybe it had got down to Sam. And then we started repainting our house, and we discovered that the roots of the fruit salad plant had grown down to the ground, across the driveway, and under the house. So they pulling the bottom board of the house off because it had really had to push hard between the concrete and the bottom board of the house. So the first thing we had to do before we repainted that part of the house was get rid of the roots, which is no mean feat with fruit salad plants. They're quite tough. The fruit salad plants no longer looking quite so healthy. The question asked of us today is where are our roots? We have our roots when we haven't noticed drifted off to and planted themselves in. What roots in our lives, both as individuals and as families and as communities, what roots need to be chopped out? What images of God lead us astray from the God who loves us first, who forgives us before we even know we need forgiveness. Who invites us to live with the same love and compassion as shown to us. What values lead us astray and hinder us from being a people of generosity and joy and peace? What priorities prevent us from being a people of of hope? As I said in the pew sheet this week, I invite you to take time every day to be still for a moment and to think about at the end of each day 
what you might give thanks for, for the ways that God has brought peace and hope into your life that day. And then to reflect on the roots that you have that lead you away from that peace and hope and where you might need to reroute your life so that you can live peace each day. May this Advent be a time where we can reflect on our roots, the roots that need to be dug up and the new roots that need to be planted.